Let's let's look at Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. And we'll look at verses 11 to 16 this morning as we look at this particular topic, which I pray will be a blessing to you and will actually uh, help us to understand what's the purpose of it. What do you do with it? How do you use it? Romans chapter 2, verse 11. For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for this time when we can look into your word and we can grow through it. We pray that you would open up the eyes of our understanding that we might see your truth and that we might learn how to apply those truths to our lives. Father, we pray for an abundance of grace that we might live that truth. And we pray that we would understand the work of your spirit within our hearts, the work of the conscience working within us. And Father, and our Saviour who leads us every step of the way, we pray for your blessing upon us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do people feel bad when they do something wrong? <clears throat> never felt bad? <clears throat> There'd be something wrong with you, I think, if you never felt bad when you've done something wrong. Why do some people carry guilt for years and years after they've done something to someone else and they've never been able to forgive themselves for it? When we look at the atrocities that, that happen in the world and you look at what's happening in... Um, in Israel and those sort of places, and you see the um, the the depths to which uh, people can go to in their hatred for one another. You have to ask yourself the question: Do they have a conscience at all? How is it that one person is sensitive and feels guilty about about doing something wrong, um, and someone else is able to literally kill someone and slaughter them? Uh, without feeling much at all, seemingly. And what does the law have to do with conscience? What is, what, how do those two work together? What about the Holy Spirit and the conscience? How do those two things uh, work together? What use is a conscience to a born-again believer? I mean, we had a conscience when we were not saved, right? When we were unsaved, we had a conscience. Every person the Bible says has a conscience. But what happens after you get saved? I mean, what good is it after? Where does it come from in the first place? Where does a conscience actually come from? So today I'm hoping to answer some of these questions. We'll probably go into next week as well. And explain what the Bible says about our conscience and how to use it, probably more importantly. So my question to you this morning, I want you to think about yourself and I'm going to get you to think about when was, when was the last time your conscience spoke to you? 
Can you think about that? When was the last time your conscience spoke to you? Was it when you did something wrong or when you were thinking about doing something wrong and you felt that that thing within you? When was the last time it spoke to you? The question is, what does it sound like? Does your conscience have a voice? Because, because we often speak about a conscience as speaking, as actually having the ability to say things to us. What does it sound like? What did it actually say to you? Can you remember? I remember there a few incidents in my life, especially growing up when I was young and a teenager, and I was getting into mischief and doing things that were wrong. And I remember certain times in my life when I actually really felt guilty about what I'd done. And it stuck with me. Okay, And those, those were things that I actually carried with me. And I didn't actually forget because they affected me that much. Um, they were centered around more about where I, when I treated someone wrong who I knew loved me. Does that make sense? Mm. Um, I realized after that I shouldn't have done those things or I treated someone badly um, or I did some things that I knew realized I shouldn't have done. So it seemed to me that at that particular time when you reflect on when I was reflecting on this particular um, subject that I was like almost grieving on the inside for some particular reason. Having been in ministry for a number of years now, I've seen people carry guilt for many, many years. And they grieve for a very, very long time for things they'd done wrong a long, long time ago. And they can't seem to be able to forgive themselves. Um, when I was um, thinking about this particular topic, I was reminded of that woman that came to Jesus. You know that... Um, Turn to Luke chapter 7 with me. Luke chapter 7. This is where Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house to eat. And there's an uninvited guest who arrives. <clears throat> and it says in Luke 7.36, And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. That means to eat, essentially. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet, weeping behind, uh, weep, uh, behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now that's someone who's borne a, the guilt of a conscience, by the looks of it, for a very long time, who needed to be freed from that. And she came to Jesus hoping that he could forgive her. Now, that's an interesting thought when you think of it. To come to someone who is considered holy to actually be freed from the burden of your own guilt. And Jesus responded, look in verse 47. 
He responds to the need that she has for this burden in her conscience with forgiveness. And Luke 7.47 says, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many. So he didn't actually say that, you know, oh, that's no, not a big deal. I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Isn't that an interesting phrase? That love is able to cover those sins and a person, depending on what they're being given, reflects that back. So to whom is given little, gives little. But to whom is given a lot, gives a lot. And he's speaking about love. So if I reflect on that for a moment and I think about how much I've been forgiven, if I reflect... If I reflect on this woman who was crying at Jesus' feet, wiping his feet with her hair, and that shows some seriously genuine repentance there, okay? And then Jesus is using her as an example of how much she has been forgiven and how much she loves. Um, I, I have to wonder what it is about us when we don't love. Does it actually show that we don't understand how much we've been forgiven? Is it, is it an indication that we, we, we take the forgiveness of God so lightly and the, the price that he paid, because he gave us a lot, okay? You can't put an, a figure on that. He gave us so much in order that we would be forgiven and for us to not love him with all of our hearts really is a bad indictment upon us. Um, this woman's conscience needed to be dealt with. She couldn't bear the sin that she bore, the guilt that she felt, and your conscience will do that to you. Do you know there's no word for conscience in the Old Testament? There's literally no word for conscience in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, like in the New Testament, conscience is spoken about a number of times, but there's no literal word for conscience. But we see a number of stories where people's consciences are obviously affected. If you remember, uh, Joseph's brothers did a pretty bad thing to him. I mean, they, they threw him in a pit. They sold him off to uh, some, uh, what were they, Egyptian traders or... Um, And it says that when they went at a particular time, much later on, Joseph had, you know, a whole range of things that happened during his life, and he'd eventually become a prince in Egypt. Okay, second only in charge to you know to Pharaoh himself. Anyway, so there's a drought in Canaan, and uh, and Joseph's brothers arrive in Egypt, not knowing that Joseph is the actual prince, and they're there to ask for grain so they can buy some grain and bring it back home because they're dying of starvation over there. Uh, their dad sent them down and and things start going really wrong for them okay things start going wrong and they start to say to themselves why is all this happening to us is because we did that thing to joseph and genesis 42 uh, verse 21 says and they said one to another we are verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when when he besought us and we will not hear therefore is this distress come upon us and that's that's the that's the words all right 
of, of people that have not gotten over what they did. Their conscience is still burning as they're remembering what they did to their brother because he disappeared from that pit. When they went back, he was already gone. Okay, So they don't even know what happened to him, but they, but they felt guilty because he would have been imploring them, pleading with them, you know, let me out. Don't, don't leave me here. Um, and Joseph wasn't even pointing the finger at his brothers. He wasn't saying, you know, well, look what you did to me. No, no, they, they were actually, this was coming back from their past, realizing their past cruelty to their brother, their brother. And, and the problem was that they were experiencing, they could see that in that light. You know when something taints your vision for everything? And everything you see begins to go look through a certain set of glasses and you see the world in a particular way because of something you've experienced that's so either bad or distressing or or impactful on your life that everything else now looks has to be seen in that particular light. And that was what was happening, what was happening with them. Their conscience definitely was alive, wasn't it? But the word conscience is used commonly in our in our culture. It's just commonly around the world. Even outside of the church, we see people often referring to their conscience. For instance, in matter, matters of morals, you know, where, where the government has to make a particular decision on something that is going to affect the lives of people, sometimes they allow the members of their own party to have a vote of conscience. Where they don't say you have to vote like this along party lines. No, we're going to allow you to have a conscience vote which means you've got, you can vote according to how your conscience tells you is right rather than what the, uh, what the political party says. But what is it? You know, if you ask the average person on the street, what is it that you've got inside you that speaks to you in this particular way? No one can really probably answer it. It's a very difficult thing to understand. Some people argue that your conscience is something cultural. In other words, you're brought up in a particular culture to learn what is right and wrong, and then you see things based on that particular prism. But that's not true. Because children, before they're able to be indoctrinated with the, with the society's rules and regulations and what's right and what's wrong, actually have the same type of thing. They've done this where they've actually looked at people from all around the world, from different cultures, and funnily enough, they had the same type of reaction when they do something wrong, okay? When they lie or when they steal or when they... They have a similar type of reaction. People from all over the world react in a similar way, sort of pointing this picture that everyone's got a conscience. doesn't matter what culture you come from. And though culture is not necessarily the originator of a of a conscience, the culture can definitely influence a conscience. It can manipulate it. So what does the scripture say? Before we go to the dictionary definition, go back to Romans chapter 2, verse 11 with me, and we'll look at what the scriptures say, because this passage that we've read this morning is a great example. Okay, It gives us a lot about what a conscience actually is. And what it actually does, and I'll, I'll get you to keep it at the back of your mind as we're reading this, one of the things that conscience points to is the fact that we are created beings. Okay, that, that we, for some reason, we're moral beings, 
we have an understanding of good and, and, and bad, okay? And that points us, people say, and, and they argue that we're actually created beings. We're not like animals. We, we have an understanding uh, of right and wrong. And it points to a creator who is also a moral being. Romans 2.11 says, For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. So here, let's just stop there for a moment. So here Paul argues that God is not biased towards anyone. God doesn't say, you know, you're better than him because you're richer or you're more special as a person or anything like that. The Bible says God is, looks at everyone the same. God is not biased towards people. He doesn't favor one person over another. Doesn't matter where you come from, what your background is, what your intelligence level is, what your status is in society, what your parents are, or, or, or whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're Jew, whether you're not. God is not a respecter of persons. But notice though it says that to sin without the law means that you're going to perish without the law. You're going to die without the law. And to sin in the law means you're going to be judged by the law, by that written code. But what does it actually mean? It means if, is, if you are in the law like a Jew, remember I said to you this morning during communion time, the Jews signed up to a contract with God. okay, And that contract said, we are going to follow all the rules you've given us. Okay, we are going to cut our hair a certain way. We're going to dress a certain way. We are going to uh, perform certain rituals in a certain way. We are going to declare we worship you. We're not going to worship other gods. We're going to build a temple that's going to have this type of thing. We're going to pick people among us who are going to be priests. And we're going to follow all these rules and regulations for our society because you are our king. And we're going to sign of a dotted line. We're going to say we are in agreement to this. If you're under that law and you believe in that law and you have that law, then the scripture says that when you sin, you're going to be found guilty by that law because you have a written code that you've signed up to and it's going to declare you what? Guilty. Because the law can only really declare guilt can't equip you to follow it better. It can't do anything for you to make you a better person. It actually just points at all your bad stuff, okay? Remember that phrase? For all have sinned, okay? And fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned. So whether you're in the law, everyone who was signed up to that covenant, to that agreement, has sinned. Okay, is therefore guilty before God. But what about if you don't have the law then? What are you judged by then? Well, if, if, if I don't have, like I'm in Australia, there are written codified laws that we have to follow. Okay, and then we break those laws. There's a law that's written. And if they want to bring you to court, 
the judge has a written law that says Frank was not supposed to, I don't know, drive at 100 kilometres an hour down a 60 kilometre zone. Fair enough? It's written somewhere. Every law is written somewhere. And that's how the judges work out whether you're innocent or guilty, whether you've broken that particular law. But what happens when there's nothing written? Yeah, so the Jews got their written laws, 600 plus of them, okay, with all the details in it and everything. But what about the Gentiles? The Gentiles haven't signed up to a law. What are they being judged by? And that's the question that this particular passage answers. How will you judge as a sinner if you don't have a written law? Well, have a look at verse 14. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves. And what is that, what is that showing? What does that mean? Which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men, by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So what Paul says about the Gentiles here, and, and he is specifically the apostle to the Gentiles. That was his main job. Okay, He's contrasting the Gentiles to the Jews. The Jews had the law, and they were going to be judged by the law. And the law was always going to pronounce every one of them guilty okay, before God. Okay, But the Gentiles have a law as well. And it's somehow written inside of them. It says the work of that law is actually working within them. Now, what is that work of that law? What's written in your heart? Well, the work of that, what is the, what is the work of the law? The work of the law convince, convicts you of guilt when you break it and can say to you, okay, you've, this one you've passed. You've actually, you've actually uh, passed this one. You've actually obeyed this one. That's all it can do. But the law is designed to convict someone of guilt and sin. Now, what the Gentiles have that show them that they are sinners before God, what's the accusing finger? It's their conscience. Their conscience, without even the law being written, okay, is pointing and saying, notice it says, it says, um, their conscience also bearing witness. <laughs> what's a witness? When you're in a court of law and they bring witnesses against you and the witness says, I saw him do that at this particular place. And so their thoughts are accusing them or excusing them. The Gentiles have their conscience, which bears witness against them as sinners. It declares that they are either guilty about doing something wrong, or they are innocent and they did that thing right. It can either excuse them through their thoughts for what they have done. In other words, you're okay, that was okay, you didn't do anything wrong there. Or it accuses them of doing something wrong. Either way, the result is the same. The Bible teaches that all are guilty before God. Whether you're under the law or whether you're listening to your own conscience, everyone knows that they're guilty before God. Everyone has a guilty conscience. And you know why? This all points to the final verse in that passage, which is verse 16. Because in that day, 
God is going to judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. The secrets. And who's the only one that knows your secrets? It's God. And who's going to be the one that is a witness against you? Your own conscience. So what is God going to use to judge the hearts of men, all those secret things? The witness he's got is already inside you. It's going to be accusing you. So if you think one day, if you're not saved here this morning, if you haven't received Christ as your saviour, I want to let you know that one day, the Bible says, everyone is going to stand before God and have to give an account of themselves. Okay, And so for the believer... They've put their trust in Christ, that Christ has paid for all their sins. And all they, when they stand before God, God's going to say, all right, all your crimes have been paid for. You're free to go. But if you stand before God without that advocate with you, without that lawyer who's paid the price, then you're going to have to pay your own. And the scriptures are going to say that every secret sin Every thought that you've ever had is going to come out in full. And you know who's going to be the one that betrays you in front of everyone? Your own conscience is going to actually cough everything up. Your conscience is going to testify against yourself. You won't be able to say one thing. So that's the primary purpose of a conscience. Okay, a conscience is going to declare us guilty before God or declare a person will say guilty before God. But what did, what's the definition of a conscience? We're going to go back to what, what, where does this thing start? Okay. So according to a dictionary definition, a conscience is a sense or consciousness of the moral goodness or blameworthiness of one's own conduct. Okay? So whether what you're doing is either morally good or morally bad. And not just your conduct, your intentions. Okay? I intend to do this. It'll tell you whether it's good or bad. And your character as well. And then what it also says, according to this definition, is that it comes with a feeling or obligation to do what is right or good. Is that fair enough? I think that's a good definition. Conscience, then, is the faculty whereby we are at once conscious of our own thoughts, words, and actions, and whether they are good or whether they are bad, whether those things are praiseworthy or whether those things are evil. Your conscience, our conscience, is like a feedback mechanism for us. It feeds back what's coming out of my head, okay, and what's being generated in my heart, and says to us, oh, 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 no, that's no good. Or, oh, that's good, okay? Actually, the word conscience is made up of two, the English word conscience is made up of two Latin words, con. Are there any cons out there? There is a con out there, I think. Not you. And the second part is the word science. Heard that word before? Okay. 
So literally, the word conscience, con means with, okay? And science means knowledge. So conscience literally means with knowledge. Something you do, something you think, that is with, are done with knowledge. And you know what knowledge that is? The knowledge of good and evil. So the conscience can be an accusing witness with an accusing finger pointing at you, which creates an emotional response from you after you've done something wrong or are contemplating doing something wrong, which is an interesting thought, which means it's useful. Your conscience can tell you don't do something wrong before you do it, which means you can stop from doing it. Jesus used conscience against people at the right time. Go to John chapter 8, verse 7 with me. John chapter 8, verse 7. John chapter 8, verse 7. So the, the gentlemen, certain gentlemen have uh, grabbed the woman. They've brought her in front of Jesus. They've said she's been, uh, she's been caught uh, in the act of adultery and uh, we're going to stone her. What do you think? John chapter 8, verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up and said unto them, He that is without sin... Among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, look at this, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Now, what happened there? Jesus used their own conscience to tell them, you're no better than her. You're guilty just like her. And you're standing in judgment on her when you haven't judged yourselves first. And so it brought out hypocrisy within them. It revealed hypocrisy. And when their conscience was, was, uh, was pointing the finger and saying, you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. By the grace of God, they listened to what it was saying and they stopped. Where does it come from, though? Where does it come from? You know, most Christians and most Christian theologians and authors agree that the conscience is obviously the ability to know the difference between good and evil. And it was given to man by God, which makes us like God, which makes us like a moral being like God. Because God knows right and wrong, doesn't he? Yeah. Okay. And so they assume, the assumption is that because we have a conscience, because we're moral beings, therefore we've always had a conscience. Okay. Because we've always been moral. That makes your conscience a gift from God, doesn't it? 
It's a gift from God, your conscience. But is it? Remember the root word? Con, science, with, knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. Have you heard that phrase before somewhere in the Bible? The knowledge of good and evil? Hmm. Let me give you a bit of a background. God creates Adam and Eve. He puts them into a perfect garden. In the middle of that garden are two trees. One's the tree of life. One's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? How many other laws that they have to worry about? One law. You mean there was no thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt honour thy mother and father. Well, there's no mother and fathers around anyway. Um, there was no other laws? Not even one more? It was just don't eat from that tree? Now, what does that tell us a bit about Adam and Eve and their situation? That God wouldn't want them to eat from that particular tree and he's given them no other laws. And he says to them, you can eat of every tree in the garden, including that one with the life that just will continue to give you life forevermore. But that one, the day you eat of that particular tree is the day you're going to die. Why would I die by gaining the knowledge of good and evil? Well, let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 and look at verses 4 to 11 with me. Now, I want you to keep something in mind. Before I read this passage, how many clothes did Adam and Eve have on? None. That's not nice, is it? That wouldn't be acceptable. Why was it acceptable for them to be completely naked? Hmm. Okay. So there was no laws about clothes wearing either. Genesis 3, 4. God said, when you eat of this tree, you're going to die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? 
Hmm, interesting, isn't it? They were naked and they hid themselves. Before they weren't worried about being naked, now all of a sudden, they're worried about being naked. Where did they get that? And God says, where did you hear this? Did you eat from that from that tree that I told you not to eat from? And they obviously had. They had just consumed the knowledge of good and evil. They had consumed the law that they weren't ready to... And they, they had no ability to be able to follow either. You know, for those of you who have children and you have little babies and sometimes they'll run around the house naked. Okay? Now, you as a parent would not walk around the streets naked, would you? But you're happy for your kids to run around your house naked, <coughs> running around and having fun and not knowing anything at all. Why are you happy about that? Because they want. They're innocent. Okay? And when someone's innocent, all your stuff doesn't matter. All the laws. You don't heap them on a child of two years of age. Do you understand what I'm saying? They just can't handle it. It's not them. They're innocent. But you can take away innocence in a moment, can't you? And that's what happened to Adam and Eve. They lost the innocence overnight. How could the devil offer them something that they already had when he said your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to be like God's knowing good and evil? Could he offer them something like that? Could it have been a lie? It wasn't a lie. He offered them something they didn't have. They didn't have the ability to know good and evil. They didn't have it. But they got it. And what they got with that was a conscience. And a conscience that would forever accuse them for the rest of their lives about everything they did wrong. And they weren't able to follow it. It accused them from day one. They were feeling naked before God. They were feeling exposed before God. They did not see themselves as pure anymore. They were guilty now. And they would forever be guilty. And the temptation would always be that they would be hiding away from the one who was pure. That's why they began this the business of trying to sew fig leaves together. You know, when you do something wrong and when you're naked and ashamed in front of someone else, you want to cover yourself up. And that's not just a picture from a physical point of view. They're trying to cover up their sin. And it doesn't work. When you try with your own works to cover up your sins and to, to hide them and to cover them before God who sees everything, it's woefully inadequate. From that time on, man has known good and evil naturally because it's been inbuilt in them. It's passed, been passed down from that tree and we haven't been able to deal with it. We can't. We don't have the ability to be able to even obey the conscience, the voice inside us. 
Well, that consciousness has been good from the perspective of it's telling us what's right and wrong, and it hurts when you do something wrong. So it's actually beneficial in a certain way, but from another perspective, it doesn't, it can't actually help us. It just declares our guilt all the time. And it will be the very thing that convicts us when we stand before God one day. Ourselves will convict us. We've been left holding the incriminating evidence. And we carry around with us every day of our lives. There's a story I once heard that reminded me of a, um, there's a, a singer that I, I used to sing, uh, hear a lot when I was uh, first saved. Um, his name was Steve Chapman. And he tells a story about his son. He's got two sons, one a little bit older, one a little bit younger. And at one particular stage, the younger one came crying up to him. He was screaming his eyes out. And he's got this massive thing on his head, like a big bruise and a knot on his head, okay? And he's screaming, ah, my brother, my brother. And his brother, his brother came quickly running behind and he says, oh, I, I didn't do anything. And he's got a baseball bat in his hand. <laughs> and his dad looks at him and he says, son, um, if you're going to say you didn't do anything, you might want to just let go of the incriminating evidence. Just drop the bat. No, no, we, we, we stole what was not, we were not meant to have and we've been living with it ever since. It's the incriminating evidence that convicts us every day of our lives. So can you imagine if you stole something from someone that you loved, right? Let's say there was someone who loved you and cared for you and, and only ever did good stuff to you and you then went and stole something precious from them, okay? When they weren't looking because you wanted that for yourself and you carry that thing around with you every day. Imagine that. That's what we did. We took what we weren't supposed to have and we carry the incriminating evidence around with us every day. And it points at us all the time. Where did Adam and Eve get their conscience? I, I doubt very much God gave it to them because they were innocent. But you know something interesting? What the Jews call the tree of knowledge of good and evil? The Jews call the tree of the knowledge of good and evil the tree of conscience. Maybe there's a reason for it. On the day that we spiritually died, when our parents ate of that fruit and our relationship with God was broken because we became sinners before him, um, we went from being innocent to guilty, from being God conscious, from being him being central in our lives to self-conscious, to us being central in our lives. And we've been self-obsessing ever since. Okay, our big problem is that not only do we have the knowledge of good and evil now, right, which is built into us, and we know that something is good and know that something is, is, is wrong to do, but we still do it anyway. But on top of that, remember what else the, the, the devil promised? He said, you're going to be like gods. And so that's what we want too. We have to be gods because God is the one who determines good and evil, isn't it? And I've got that inside me. I know that. So therefore, I want to be God. So we spent our lives Instead of God being at the centre, putting ourselves at the centre. 
we put ourselves at the center of the universe. We became self-conscious. We became self-absorbed. And if and if and if it wasn't just us, it was our culture. It was our people, our family, our interests, our feelings, our pride, our egos. They were at the center of everything that was real. And everything had to revolve around us because I am the definition of reality. And we took out where God was supposed to be, we put ourselves. And the more we did it, the more we suffered, the more we made other people suffer around us, the more miserable miserable we became, and the more we robbed God of his glory, and the more we knew it was wrong, but we just kept on doing it more and more. Because heaven forbid if I take myself out of the center and I put someone else there, all of a sudden I'm going to have to make my life go around them. And it's what we did to God. We may be gods with little g's, and we know good and evil, but I'll tell you what, we make terrible gods. We make terrible gods. We We are tyrants when it comes to being God, with ourselves and with each other. Look at the world around you, and you see the results of people who call themselves gods, determining what is right and what is wrong. The reason we see so much sin and so much and so much problems in the world is because man continues to make himself God. They're playing God. And they suppress the obvious knowledge that they are not God and that they are guilty before God. So in order to try to deflect the obvious failings and sin, what did Adam and Eve do? So you want to be God. You want to be in the center, right? You want, you want everyone else to revolve around you, including your church, your people, your family. Everyone's got to conform to you. And in fact, our culture is getting worse and worse at that moment. Everyone gets offended at everything, right? That, show, that shows that they're actually more central to themselves. They're the center. Because if you're the one always getting offended at what everyone else is doing, then you are the arbiter of truth. Okay, you're God. And so the more people get offended, the more they are the center of their own lives and the more miserable they actually become. And so, but deep down they know that there's problems. Even though they know they've got like serious shortcomings, that they're actually evil and they're sinful, their thoughts are always bad. So what do they do with that? Well, they do what Adam and Eve did, okay? Um, they've got to blame someone else for it. So they, the first one that Adam and Eve blamed was who? The devil. The devil made me do it. This, there's, there's this, there's this, uh, this being who's actually forcing me to do this thing. He forced me to do it. Uh, and, and then when that doesn't work, when you realize that's not going to fly with the whole thing, you blame then the other people around you. Oh, the woman you gave me. She gave me the apple. And she messed up first. And when that doesn't work, who do you blame? It's the woman you gave me. It's all your fault, really. Isn't it? And the atheists are the greatest exponents of this argument. If someone's an atheist, that's, the, that's their go-to argument every time. When they look at the evil around them, they don't blame man for it. No, no, they, they, they blame God for that. 
right? And so their argument is always against God because they've come straight to that conclusion. And they say, look at the evil in the world. If there was a God who really loved us, there wouldn't be this evil in the world. Therefore, what? God doesn't exist. All right, so God doesn't exist. And if God does exist, it's his fault because he didn't come in to fix it. And they take no responsibility. And they're the ones who are determining what's right and what's wrong themselves. Deep down, everyone knows they're guilty of sin. And that sin is worthy of death. Yet, they suppress that thought, they suppress that truth, and they try and hide and run away from it. But there is a solution that's given by God to us for being lawbreakers, for having a guilty conscience. And from the curse of being false gods. And it's the blood of Jesus Christ. It cleanses you from everything. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9 with me. Hebrews 9.14. We're, we're going to look at God's solution to this problem that we have. Of a guilty conscience. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God? He was innocent. Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Ever had something purged from your computer? Ever done a good purge? A good clean? Ever clicked empty on your on your bin on your disk? It's empty, right? So you throw all your stuff into your bin on your computer, and then you click empty, and then all of a sudden it's all gone. I don't know where it goes. To be honest with you, it's empty. It just goes, disappears. Well, that's what it means for your conscience to be purged. Huh? So we during our lives, all this stuff that we've done, we know is wrong, and it's accusing us. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes along and like with a push of a button, the blood that he shed on Calvary's cross purges our conscience and cleanses it of all that accusing knowledge. The blood of Christ cleanses a person from a conscience that has tried all its life by its own works to be God. Works that have no value, but only lead you to death, that stand as evidence of your crimes. And the blood of Christ can purge you of all of your sin and stain and make you perfectly clean before God, as clean as Adam and Eve ever were. It can put you on the path to serve the true and living God rather than serving yourself. When we say the blood of Christ... And how that specifically works and how God is able to utilize that to actually clean your sin and stain. The method is simple faith, the Bible says. See, I don't know exactly when I click empty bin on my computer, I don't know what happens in the background. Does anyone know? Does anyone know the code that the computer follows? to go into the bin and take the file and do something with it? Does anyone know how that works? Because I don't. 
Now, I, don't, I may not know how God's, how the blood of Jesus cleanses me from sin, but I know it does. Okay, I don't have to know exactly all the detail behind it, but God simply says, if you believe that he died for your sins and he shed his blood for you, then, the blood, then his blood will cleanse you from every sin and stain and it, and it is sufficient to do that and give you a clear and clean conscience. And that's why, look at 1 Peter 3.21 with me. That's why people get baptized. And that's coming up soon. We've got a thing this afternoon for those of you who want to get baptized. A bit of an information session and an opportunity for you to ask any questions about what it means um, straight after church today, after we grab something to eat. But look at, look at what Peter says that baptism then is. Because in 1 Peter 3.21, it says that baptism, the like figure, like a, an example or a symbol, whereunto even baptism, baptism does also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. In other words, it doesn't clean you like that. But what is it? It's the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you get baptized, you're declaring, you're answering God and saying, God, you've given me a clear conscience. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. How can you have a good conscience toward God? By trusting Jesus to save you. Trusting that the blood he shed is sufficient to pay for all of your debt, all of your sin and guilt before God. Trust that. And the Bible says you have everything, everything. So let me finalize this. What roles does the conscience play in sharing the gospel? If you ever, for those of you who love sharing the gospel, what, does, what role does the conscience play? Well, much in every way, as the Apostle Paul loves to say. Remember that the conscience is the accusing finger that's either accusing or excusing people of what they've done. And it doesn't forget. It's got a long memory. And we know that all men, all people have a conscience. And so the Bible says, what do we appeal to? We appeal to their conscience. Okay? That's what you're appealing to. So turn to 2 Corinthians 4.1 as we finish up this, with this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. So if you're wondering what part of a person are you actually appealing to when you're sharing the gospel with them, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. So the Apostle Paul's talking about declaring the gospel to people. And he says, and he's, he's an apostle with that specific role. And he says, therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. We don't slow down. We don't give up. Okay. But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty all those hidden things of the heart not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of god deceitfully but by manifestation of the truth commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of god that's what we are doing with our lives we are commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of god what does it mean to manifest the truth to others? Well, he explains in this passage. It means that we aren't dishonest anymore. It means that we aren't devious or crafty, seeking to manipulate people. 
We don't handle the word of God deceitfully, which means dishonestly, but we are honest and we are sincere. And in living like this and sharing God's word with them, we are making an appeal to their conscience. It's their conscience that we want to speak to. Because is their conscience going to say, yes, you are guilty? Because the scriptures say that all have fallen. Okay, All have, uh, have broken God's commandments. All are guilty before God. And so we are appealing to someone and we're, and we're saying, listen to your conscience. Your conscience is telling you you are guilty before God and you cannot save yourself. And the only remedy for your situation is to put your trust in the Savior. You need to listen to your conscience. And so we appeal to men's conscience. We'll look, at it. we'll look at this topic a bit more next week and a bit more in detail about how practically to do it. But at this point, I want you to ask yourself some questions. If you're here this morning, are you convicted by your conscience this morning? Does it convict you as being guilty? Have you understood your dilemma if you're convicted as being guilty, if your own conscience is actually convicting you of guilt, of sin, then what chance do you have in front of God who knows every secret thought in your life? One day the Bible says that all men will stand before God and give an account of themselves before him. And your greatest witness against you will be you. Is the burden of your sin weighing heavily on your shoulders this morning? Do you want to be free of it? Do you want to be purged of all that? Well, there is a way. The Bible says simply trust Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. Put your faith in him and he will save you. Call on him and he's not going to reject you. He's going to answer you. And he will give you the thing that you need the most, which is cleansing from sin and eternal life as a gift. Christian, if you have received that cleansing and you are um, saved this morning, are there certain sins in your life that are causing you distress and affecting your conscience? Is your conscience pointing that you need to get your your life cleaned up, then realize that God has saved you and has already purged you of all that sin and that you have now been freed to live for him. You'll notice it says that we that God saves us for the purpose or that we are saved for the purpose of serving God. You are saved for that purpose. You now have the ability to serve God. But you have to trust him. If you begin to put the trust back in yourself and begin to shift yourself closer to that center because you want the control, it's only going to get more difficult for you. You have been saved to serve God, not to serve yourself any longer, not to serve your flesh, your desires and your sin. Have you become distracted by your own desires and flesh? 
How heavy is that desire for you to enthrone yourself? Back again. Remember that you have been purged all of your sin. And if you have sin in your life, then you need to be cleansed of it. And the Bible tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Trust in the spotless Lamb of God. Trust in the one who innocently went to a cross, who gave us what we didn't deserve, who showed us a love that I pray we reflect back to him. God bless you. Thank you.